0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Students across the country are protesting the nation's gun laws in marches, walkouts, and on social media.
1: In Broward County,
0: Florida, today, NBC covered a rally in Florida.
1: It's really important that we come together now since adults are not doing it for us. A rally for tougher gun laws led by teenagers.
0: Students are calling for action in the wake of a deadly high school shooting in Parkland, Florida, that claimed 17 lives. In today's show, we'll examine whether gun violence, including mass shootings, is a public health problem. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from on stage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Spotlight Health. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Vivek Murthy was a doctor at one of Boston's busiest hospitals before becoming U.S. Surgeon General. His confirmation in 2014 was delayed a year because of his stance on guns. He's a supporter of gun control laws and thinks gun violence is a public health concern.
1: Whenever you have large numbers of people who are dying for preventable reasons, that constitutes a public health crisis.
0: Murthy is no longer Surgeon General, but he continues to seek solutions to stem gun violence. Today he speaks with journalist Judy Woodruff about what it means to treat gun deaths as a public health crisis. Woodruff is a former NBC News White House correspondent who's now the managing editor of the PBS NewsHour. She begins the conversation. This discussion was held in the
2: summer of 2017 before Parkland. Well, we are here primarily to talk about guns, the public health crisis. You labeled it a uh, public health crisis, words to that effect, some time ago. Why use that term?
1: Well, my rationale is very simple. Whenever you have large numbers of people who are dying for preventable reasons, that constitutes a public health crisis. And we have an epidemic of gun violence in our country. We have more more than 100,000 people who are shot each year, and more than 30,000 of them actually die. And that, to me, is a major public health crisis. It's not new. It didn't crop up yesterday or last year or even five years ago but it's been going on for too long and millions of people have been affected. That's why I called it a public health crisis.
2: I, I read one, st- there's so many different statistics you could cite. I think I read, I know I read one that said more people have died as a result of guns in this country than have died in all the wars that the United States has fought since its founding in 1776, which is just, it's, it's stunning. It's hard to, to comprehend. So after the shooting uh, at uh, uh, the Pulse nightclub, in Orlando, you said, I I found a quote where you said, the real question now is how to reduce the origins and the impetus for violence in this country. What are you trying to get at when you say that?
1: When we think about how to address gun violence in America, there's no single solution. There are, I believe, a number of measures that we have to take. Uh, Some of them are policy-driven, including, for example, closing loopholes around background checks. Uh, And some of them are programmatic, Uh, for example, gun safety, which still remains a a real challenge because there are so many parents who leave their young children uh, alone in the house with loaded and unlocked weapons. And we know that's a major risk factor for injury and death for that child. But I think we also have to look at a much deeper level about what causes violence in the first place, what causes a human being to want to visit harm upon someone else. And we should also think not just about visiting harm on someone else, but upon oneself. Because of the 30,000-plus uh, deaths from gun violence each year, approximately two-thirds of those are suicides. And this is something that's surprising to many people when they, when they understand that, but, but that's very important to recognize. Uh, so when I think about this, I, this brings me actually to a larger focus around emotional well-being. Because we have focused a lot in mental health and medicine and physical well-being, on making sure that we go for a run so that we can reduce our risk of diabetes and heart disease, making sure that we protect ourselves from injury, etc. But what we pay relatively less attention to is our emotional well-being. And I, I was at a university recently in front of about 400 people, and I asked them a simple question, Judy. I said, how many of you think about emotions as a source of weakness versus a source of power? And nearly every single hand went up saying that they associated emotions Uh, with weakness. But the truth is, emotions can be a source of power for us. They can help us be resilient in the face of adversity. They can also help us to perform better at every stage uh, of our life, whether that's in school or in the workplace. And they can also help us to insulate ourselves uh, or protect ourselves from the harmful effects of stress. What I saw, Judy, when I was traveling around the country over the last two and a half years is that we do have a tremendous amount of chronic stress in our country. Acute stress can be helpful for performance, but chronic stress can actually predispose you to disease like heart disease and diabetes and dementia. And so as I think about this, um, I think a lot about the programs I visited around the country that focused on cultivating social and emotional being among kids in elementary schools and middle schools. And what's really fascinating about some of these programs is that they have been able to reduce violence uh, in those children dramatically the Chicago Becoming a Man program, a one-year intervention over 32 or so weeks where kids met with a mentor once a week to develop, again, social connection, to develop skills at how to handle conflict and adversity. And in one year, compared to a control group, they had a 44% reduction in violent arrests. Uh, These are the kind of programs we should be investing in and funding. This is early prevention, early stage prevention. We don't do enough of it as a country, but we need to do it when it comes to preventing gun violence.
2: But even if you have a lot of programs like that around the country, the sheer number of guns that are available to people, especially in some of the inner cities that you and I were just talking about, whether it's Chicago, whether it's Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, name the city or the other location, rural parts of this country, Is there, I mean, at some point is there a sense that just the availability of guns makes it, it overwhelms even uh, someone's emotion, someone who might not even be predisposed to commit a violent act because guns are everywhere? How much of a factor is that?
1: So it's an important, so people have looked at this uh, data around how does our, how do the number of guns owned per capita in the United States, how does that compare to other countries? (laughs) And really, there's no comparison. We are so far, uh, you know, so far, so much higher than any other country in terms of gun ownership per capita. Um, I think the next closest country to us is Yemen, and they're a distant, distant second. So and if you also look at the data, what the data tells you is that there's a very strong correlation between the number of guns per capita in a population and their rate of firearm-related injury and death. That's that's what the data says. That's not an ideological statement. It's not a philosophical statement. It's a scientific statement, and you also see that even within the United States. If you look at states that have a lower uh, gun, you know, number of guns per capita, uh, states like Massachusetts and New Jersey and New York, uh, they actually have much much lower uh, rates of of gun injury and death than states that have high, uh, you know, the numbers of ownership in like Alabama and. Uh, Kentucky and uh, and Wyoming, for example. So does this mean that we have to get rid of everyone's guns? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we have to look carefully at the data dispassionately and try to understand what it's telling us. And what the data is telling us is that when there is a larger availability of guns in an area, it increases the likelihood of gun-related death.
2: And and talk about the difference between the kinds of violence with guns that we see in the inner cities of Chicago, which you've referenced in other uh, American cities, and the mass shootings that we are now seeing more and more of, you've written about the distinction between these kinds of—they uh, both involve guns, but they're different phenomena.
1: Yeah, you know, we tend to think more about gun violence when a mass shooting happens in our country. It's covered more in the news. It strikes a chord of fear often much more deeply within us. But the truth is that the number of deaths related to mass shootings are approximately 1.6% of all the uh, gun-related deaths that happen in America each year. The vast majority of these deaths are not mass mass shootings, but they're happening each and every day uh, in our cities, in rural areas, all across the country. And the question is, how do we address those? But those don't really spark as much outrage. People have gotten used to the fact that Okay, yes, this weekend there were you know, a few people who were shot and killed and injured and the next weekend it's probably going to happen again. We've become almost immune to that. We've also, which is very uh, concerning and dangerous, we've become cynical about the fact that anything, anything can be done uh, to address it.
2: And that's what I want to ask you about because uh, there's been so much. I mean, whether it's, I mean, Sandy Hook, uh, you know, the names of these places, Come trippingly off the tongue, San Bernardino. I mentioned uh, the Pulse nightclub. Um, you know, whether it's Gabby Giffords or or uh, Congressman Steve Scalise. I mean, they're just they're now they are now embedded in our modern American history. It was noted. Not, I noted in the last week or so after this congressional shooting that no one brought up the idea of gun control legislation. It's. I mean, have we gotten to a point where we're just not talking about that anymore?
1: Well, I think we've gotten to a point where a lot of folks have resigned themselves to the fact that action on a federal level uh, is just too hard. That's what a lot of people have come to believe. Uh, You know, the truth is whether you're Steve Scalise or whether you're Gabby Giffords or whether you're uh, any one of the thousands of people who lose their lives each and every day who may not be famous, uh, your life is just as valuable. And we can't afford to give up. But the, the, the point here is that we shouldn't solely be looking to the federal government for action on this. There are important steps the federal government can and should take. And I think when it comes to closing uh, loopholes around background checks, I think that is actually one of those areas. But there are other things that we can do. Uh, When it comes to uh, enhancing our gun safety training, that's something that we don't need the federal government to, to necessarily do. We can work on that. When it comes to ensuring that we invest in emotional well-being programs that help protect our children from the earliest stages of life, Uh, That's something that we can start to invest in as states and as local communities. But there's one other area where the federal government does need to be involved, and that's when it comes to research. Because if you look at how much money we invest in researching causes and solutions to gun violence compared to other illnesses, there's no comparison. If you were to try to make it proportionate and say, okay... For the number of people who were killed for diabetes and heart disease, et cetera, and cancer, uh, we know how much money they get, so let's proportionally give that same amount to gun violence research based on the fact that 30,000 plus people are killed each year. If you did that, then gun violence research should get in the range of $1.4 billion of research funding each year. Do you know how much it gets? $22 million. That's a far cry from the $1.4 billion. And that's because uh, Congress historically, especially in recent history, has not dedicated uh, adequate funding to addressing our epidemic of gun violence. And if we don't invest in research, then it's hard to know in the best way possible the origins uh, of violence and the best solutions to address it.
2: And why doesn't why hasn't Congress allocated that? I mean, it's the result of lobbying by uh, some of the gun rights organizations, isn't it? Like the NRA?
1: Well, this is a, an unfortunate and very sad story. I, I think that there is no scientific reason that Congress has not allocated money for gun research, uh, gun violence research. It's not that we already know all the answers. We don't. It's also not uh, that people haven't called for it. Uh, scientists and doctors and patients and families have called for this research for quite a long time. But unfortunately, this the question around research funding has gotten caught up in politics, uh, with many people fearing that if you invest in research and if it tells you the wrong thing or tells you the right thing, whatever it might be, that it could be used to uh, enforce or to pass uh, stricter gun laws. Uh, and some people don't want that. Now, you know, each member of Congress may have his or her own, her own reason For supporting or not supporting research and that's a question that their constituents should ask them because they may have very legitimate reasons Uh, but whatever those reasons are uh, need to be clear to their constituents because right now i believe it is an injustice to all the families who have suffered over time all the people who are living uh lives you know which both physical and emotional injuries from gun violence and to all of us who live in fear that we or our families may be the victims of violence. It's an injustice to all of us that our government is not prioritizing this area of research, because that means that unnecessary deaths are taking place.
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. On the show today, is gun violence a public health issue? Former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who's featured on today's show, is a speaker in another one of our episodes. He talked about the nation's opioid crisis. That episode's called The Opioid Tsunami.
1: The opioid epidemic and addiction more broadly have become the defining public health crisis of our generation.
0: He speaks with National Institute on Drug Abuse director Nora Volko and others about what's being done and what needs to be done to fight the epidemic. Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go in your favorite podcast player, or find a link to the episode in our show notes. Back to our featured conversation, here's Judy Woodruff.
2: to drill down for just a moment on this question of, of why there isn't, why there aren't more public calls now for gun control legislation, for the kind of research, for funding the kind of research you're talking about. And even, even you were criticized when you were Surgeon General. I think it was Dr. Mark Rosenberg who was at the CDC. He at one point was quoted as saying he thought you should have done more about guns. It just seems to me there are, there's a lot of finger pointing going on. Um, what does determine whether people in public life are able to, frankly, make a crusade or make a, make a major issue out of what we're talking about.
1: So this is a. I think this comes down to a fundamental question of how do we want our democracy to work? If we assume that our elected leaders should have all of the ideas and should have the wherewithal to advance all of those ideas and it's on them, then that's one thing. But if we instead understand that our, we elect people with the best of intentions, but that it's also up to us to push for the ideas that we believe are important to address, if we believe the latter, then we have to take a much more active and engaged role uh, in pushing for the policies that we think are important. In this case, whether it's research uh, on gun violence or whether it's basic common sense uh, you know, measures like adequate background checks. Now, here's the thing. If you actually look at some of these measures, background checks, for example, it's not like the public is split on this. And this is the thing. If you look at the debate and you read the news and you listen to what uh, some of our leaders say, you might be led to believe that the country's really divided 50-50 on this. But it's somewhere in the range of 80% plus of the population with the majority of Republicans, Democrats, and Independents who all support background checks. This is not a divided population. It's actually hard to get that degree of agreement, actually, on most issues in the country. But despite that, we were not able to get uh, such a law passed after the the Sandy Hook shooting. And I think part of that reason is because the voice of individual people has become less important. It's not heard as much, and we have to dial up our volume. Uh, We live in a society, whether rightly or wrongly, uh, money is equated with speech, and organizations that have money can use that money to increase the volume of their voice and influence legislation. But that puts even more of an onus on all of us as citizens to organize and to speak up and to not take no for an answer when it comes to implementing common sense measures that can help keep our families safe. The paralysis that we see right now in Congress will not, I don't believe that it's gonna be solved from within Washington DC. I think the solution has to come from public pressure, from people demanding that their elected leaders address this issue not with platitudes or with well wishes but with action because that's what people need you know we can all get on Twitter and say our thoughts and prayers are with the fill in the blank you know the person who was uh, injured or who sadly lost her life that week and while that's important for us to have those moments of compassion and solidarity if we stop there and we don't follow that up with concrete action that can help save their lives then we're not doing our job as leaders and if we're not pushing our leaders to do that we're not doing our job as citizens
2: but how do people push their leaders? I mean, if the leaders, you know, whatever the vote count, if we're Republicans in the majority right now in the House and the Senate, we know what the majority view is going to be. And even among Democrats. I mean, there are famous examples of Democrats been in office, didn't, tried, and then gave up on this issue. How do, how do people get their views across?
1: Well, I think w- what's important is when people speak up. And, uh, you know, in these circumstances, like when there was a whenever there's legislation that's put in front in front of Congress or when there legislation is being considered around gun violence related issues, uh, you know Congress hears pretty heavily from interest groups that have uh, a vested you know, point of view and, and, and how they want that legislation to go. They variably hear, uh, from people like in, in the public. Sometimes, you know, on a given day, if it's in the news, they might get a bunch of calls and then people forget and they sort of move on. Uh, but in order for real change to happen, uh, the voices have to be large in number and they have to be consistent uh, in speaking up. So it can't just be, okay, we're going to get together for a march one day and we're all going to call in and then we're going to go back to our daily lives for the next month. But it has to be constant pressure. The greatest power you have as a citizen is your vote. Uh, and you, with your vote ultimately controls whether your elected leader keeps their job or not. Um, now, I want to say one caveat to all of this, which is you, you mentioned earlier in your question, Judy, what to do about the fact that people are pointing fingers at each other. And this is one of the real challenges. We live in a culture where blame is the road of least resistance. Whenever I did interviews on TV uh, around the opioid epidemic, for example, often the first question that the news anchor would ask me is, so who's to blame for this? Whose fault is this? And that's not an illegitimate question to ask. I mean, it's very reasonable to ask. But we we shouldn't be guided primarily by the question of who's to blame. The question really should be, how can we listen to each other and come together and fashion solutions around our common interests and our common values? But we don't have spaces where we talk about that or surface those common interests and values anymore. Many people have written about the uh, loss of of community and integrity of community over the years. And this is a real thing. It's something I saw when I was on the road a lot. I found that there was a profound sense of isolation and loneliness among people. Uh, you know, In the 1980s, 20% of adults said that they were lonely. That number stands at 40% today, despite the fact that we live in one of the most connected ages, or in the most connected age technologically in the history of civilization. So unless we find a way, I believe, to, to learn how to talk to each other again, to listen to each other, to find that common ground, and then to move forward in a collective way. Until we do that uh, at a grassroots level, we can't expect our elected leaders to do that. We might want them to do that, but I don't think it's gonna happen. I think it has to be modeled right here by people like all of us.
2: Is that what you meant when you, talk, when you spoke earlier about finding the root
1: causes of violence? Yeah, that's related to it, because here's what's really interesting. When people actually talk to each other and build true, meaningful social connection, it actually improves their emotional well-being. Social connection is a powerful driver of emotional well-being. When you are emotionally in a good space, you can talk to and listen to each other more easily. It benefits your health, but it also allows you to come together with other people and solve bigger problems. Rates of violence go down because people find it easier to resolve conflict and address conflict. Instead of assuming the worst, they ask first and they listen. That's what happens. That's what you actually see in school programs that focus on cultivating social emotional uh, well-being skills. But we need that, not just for kids. We need that everywhere in society. Now, where's that gonna come from? Well, traditionally, uh, that would sometimes come from faith-based organizations. Sometimes people would get that kind of community in church where they would come together with folks who might be different from them, but they would give them the benefit of the doubt because they had something in common, their affiliation with that institution. But we don't have a single institution that pulls us together in that way in 2017. And so what we need to fall back on is actually the power of our values. And we need clarity around our values. We have incredibly powerful values as a country. These are the values that actually brought My parents to this country 40 years ago, they came from India, a place where people were often judged based on their caste and the family that they were born into, but they came here because they wanted my sister and I to grow up in a nation where we were judged not by the sound of our name or our, our pedigree, but where we were judged by our ability to work hard and our willingness to contribute and our ideas. And there are values around equality and respect and inclusion and opportunity, which I believe are at the heart of our country. But we have to consciously surface them. If we allow implicit values to remain implicit, if we don't make them explicit, then we won't live our lives according to them. And we need, if any, we need a revolution in, our, in, in that explicit sort of sense of values. We need to surface those values so that they can inform our behavior, our actions, our speech, and ultimately the policies and programs that we build in America.
2: Do we need a leader or leaders to rally people around what you just described?
1: Leaders help a lot. Yes, we do need leaders to rally people around that vision. But you know what? Leaders come in all shapes and sizes and forms. And we have a traditional view of leader, the CEO of a corporation, somebody who gets elected to office. But some of the most powerful leaders that I have seen as I've traveled around the country have been mothers and fathers who lost a child to a drug overdose and who have turned their pain into a passion for helping others and ensuring that other parents have the support that they need. Some of the most powerful, one of the most powerful leaders I saw was a young high school student in South Florida who realized that people were so isolated and lonely at his school that it was actually impairing their health and, and having a negative effect on their school performance. So he decided to create a lunchtime program uh, called uh, We Together, uh, or something of that sort. But the purpose of this program was to, to, was to help elicit or, or make explicit a value that we don't just look out for ourselves, but we look out for each other, we care for each other, and until we are all doing well, uh, then we don't stop in our efforts to reach out and connect. So leaders have to be people like all of us. It has to be people in communities across America. It has to be people who may not have the title, who may not have their names in the papers, but people who have those values, um, who understand the importance of that vision, and who have the willingness to reach out to folks around them, uh, and to bring them together around that vision. That's actually, to me, grassroots leadership. That's what our country needs a resurgence of. And that grassroots leadership is what will allow us to hone and sharpen our leadership at the top of the pyramid. But,
2: that, but it, it's not that you're giving up on Washington, on the federal government, but you're not sitting around and waiting for lightning to strike there either.
1: No, look, I, I, don't, think, I don't think as a country we should give up on anyone, whether they are struggling with substance use disorders or whether they've struggled I'm talking about giving
2: leader. up on Washington as a... Well,
1: no, and... <laughs> I'm not getting I, up I mean on the American that too people. because in the last two and a half years I've had the the privilege of actually working with many members of Congress on both sides of the aisle and I will tell you that um, with, with very rare exception the people that I have met are well-intentioned people who could probably be doing another job and making twice as much money but are doing this in part because they they believe in public service there are there are a lot of good people in Congress but they're caught in an institution that, in some ways, is broken, and they're caught sp- particularly in a politics that is broken, uh, and they, and they often sometimes they have strategies for getting out of that, and sometimes they don't. But I don't think we should give up on them in the sense that I don't think we should assume that because the outcomes that we want are not good, that the people themselves are bad, and that's I think an important uh, lesson that we that I try to remember each and every day, and that I think we have to remember as a country is we may disagree with people on their policies and their stances. But when we start to vilify them as individuals, when we start to say that's a bad person, uh, that's actually when we go downhill. That's when we fracture as a community. That's when uh, when we come apart exactly at those moments of stress and struggle where we need to come together.
0: Today's conversation is from Spotlight Health, the opening segment of the Aspen Ideas Festival. The three-day health conference features an exceptional mix of inspiring and provocative experts who dive into topics of medicine and health. Learn more and buy passes on our website, aspenideas.org slash spotlighthealth. Here's the rest of today's conversation about gun violence, featuring Vivek Murthy and Judy Woodruff.
2: Uh, let's bring the conversation back specifically to guns. What you, you've said that you want, you'd like to work more on the root, as you said, the root causes uh, of violence. Would that be enough for the country? I mean, right now, for us to think about that, to think about getting some sort of program in American schools so that children are raised to think about other ways to to exercise their frustrations.
1: Well, I think we have to work on several fronts. We have to work on instituting social and emotional well-being programs in schools and communities as part of an upstream prevention intervention. But we also, in parallel, need to work on enhancing gun safety and gun safety training. We also have to work on enhancing our background check system because there are loopholes and it does not always work. And the fourth thing that we have to do in parallel is we have to invest as a country in research. On, uh, on the origins and on the uh, you know ways to address gun violence, uh, that's a place where we do need the federal government to act. That's a place where the voice of citizens is more important now than ever before. If we become immune uh, to the idea that uh, the that gun violence is a problem, if we just accept that you know what, this is just how life is, you know people are going to hurt each other and that's you know it's just what we have to accept. If if, if that's the path that we that we go down, uh, that's a really dangerous path. Because that may, the, today, it might be gun violence that we start accepting. Tomorrow might be opioid overdose deaths that we just start accepting and saying that's just part of how things are. Uh, it's a slippery slope. Every life is precious. Every life has meaning. And if we believe that, uh, then we have to fight for every life. And in this case, those four steps or measures that we can take to address gun violence, I think would actually make a big difference. Uh, in not only preventing the mass shootings, but more importantly, uh, in in preventing the day-to-day occurrences of gun violence uh, that lead to injury uh, and to death. W- one last thing I just want to share on this is a personal story actually around this, which is that you know when I was a when I was in medical school, uh, uh, and when I decided I would become an internal medicine doctor, you know I had a certain view of the of what I would be uh, dealing with as an internal medicine doctor. I thought i Primarily, you know, see people who have diabetes and heart disease and people with infections and who have cancer and who are dealing with that. But what I did not realize is the number of people that I would see with injuries related uh, to gun violence. Uh, I remember one man in particular who had a spinal cord injury uh, and he was paralyzed uh, you know, from, uh, from the waist down. Uh, He did not have the use of his bladder, so he had to have a special tube that was inserted in his bladder to drain urine. And because uh, of the tube, he was more prone to infections. And he came into the hospital uh, to see us because of another recurrent urinary tract infection. And when I talked to him about his story, he had been living the last 10 years of his life after sustaining an injury. He wasn't even part of the fight that was going on. He was walking by and was struck by a stray bullet. When we think about the cost of gun violence, we, th- we tend to think about how many people died. What we don't think about often enough are people like him, people whose lives have been permanently changed, who have lost their ability to do things that you and I may take for granted, who the- whose family uh, has had experience a major shift in their quality of life, and whose families have had to now uh, endure a degree of pain that none of us should have had to endure. So these are the, costs, the human costs of gun violence beyond the $48 billion that it costs us a year. Uh, beyond the number of lives lost, it is the injury, the disability, the emotional trauma that we have to keep front and center. That's hard to quantify that.
2: All right. It's time to turn uh, over to the audience to give you a chance to ask Dr. Murthy some questions. Let's see. There's a hand right there. Last year at the Ideas
3: Festival, I met at a lunch a man named John Feinblatt, who works with Bloomberg Philanthropies, and he is the CEO of every town for gun safety, and he has, they have um, uh, joined with Moms Demand Action, which is a woman named Shannon Watts. They actually came back to Aspen, and I introduced them to as many people as I could, and I guess my question would be, what they've done is said, the NRA has nobody going against them. That Not only Democrats, not only Republicans, but Democrats really are nervous about the NRA, because there's just not the lobbying effort to go against the NRA, and um, so I don't know whether from a lobbying standpoint there are health lobbyists or you know illness lobbyists, I don't know enough about lobbying, that, that, that should be combining with, I understand Bloomberg may be spending $60 million a year on this issue. So there are people working on it, but they're, they're now saying that they're going into different states to work on
2: ju- judicial races, that kind of thing. Yeah, they are spending a lot. I don't know exactly how much.
1: Yeah, they are, and, I, and I'm familiar with some of their work, uh, but you know, you, it's, you're right that we need more individuals and organizations who are being very vocal about the right stance to take on these issues. And I think part of the problem is that uh, the voices that often speak up uh, against uh, any legislative measure to address gun violence uh, are often quite loud. They may not represent the majority of the country, in fact they don't, uh, but they are loud voices. Um, I think though that if we really want to build a broad-based coalition uh, that will speak up for uh, common sense measures to address gun violence, I do believe that it has to start on a grassroots level, that it has to start by conversations that take place uh, at YMCAs and in synagogues and in churches uh, and in schools, where parents come together and identify the common interests that they have, which is to protect their children, their families, and their communities uh, from senseless gun violence, and then to start thinking about how best to address it. This might seem very simple. It might seem, of course, like everyone's uh, you know against uh, gun violence. You know, who would be for it? You know, why is it important to come around and be explicit about that? The reason is because in the heat of the battles that we have. Uh, you know, around this issue, we forget that we're actually bound together by a common goal. And the question is how best to get there. And this is actually where data comes in as well. Uh, I do think that most people uh, embrace data and are rational in their thinking. Most people want to know from a scientific standpoint uh, what works and what doesn't work. And if the science isn't there, it's not there. But if there is science there, they want to know what it tells them. Uh, But many people don't have access to that science. Uh, If there was an, an intervention, uh, that if launched in my community would reduce the, the chances that my nine-month-old son uh, would grow up and be the victim of violence, I would want to know about it. I'd want to know how I could support it. And I haven't met a single parent in all of the places I've visited in the country, whether they're rural or urban or liberal or conservative, uh, who has said otherwise. Um, but we don't, right now, create opportunities for people to come together and to have those conversations as much as we should. Uh, we don't necessarily, and we don't invest in the research to give them as much data as they need, even though there's a lot already out there. So while I think it's, it's wonderful that, um, that there are organizations that are pushing this uh, issue forward, uh, you know, on a legislative level, and that's critical. We need that but that can't substitute for the importance of grassroots efforts, uh, we need those. And that's where if you're an individual in a community who's wondering, hey, how can I make a difference on an issue that's as uh, seemingly uh, unstoppable and difficult to address as this, this is actually how you can start. You can start by convening those conversations, whether it's four people around the dinner table or whether it's 50 people like in your school, uh, conversations where people reaffirm our common goal and start to examine for yourself Uh, what the evidence is uh, for measures that we can take to reduce gun violence.
2: Question.
4: Hi, uh, Myra Alvarez. I run a nonprofit children's advocacy and policy organization and I have a two part question that relates um, to what's been in the press a lot lately and that's the murder of Philando Castile. For us as a children's advocacy organization, we thought a lot about the little girl that was in the back seat. Similar to what you said, why isn't the debate more about the people that are impacted, the people whose children are left behind or whose little brothers and sisters are left behind? Um, So I want your thoughts on how do we reframe the gun violence debate to talk about who's left behind and who's impacted and would that make a difference and what does that look like, particularly from a policy perspective? But also related to that is that Philando Castile was a licensed gun owner and there was no comment made by the NRA. So can you talk about the racial undertones that are in our gun violence debate and how racism has continued to perpetuate the violence that we've seen in communities of color, especially.
1: It's a really good question. Um, could be like a three-hour answer to that one, I think. But, uh, Myra, but I appreciate the question. Um, you know, I, th- I think you're right, there, are, there isn't enough attention given to the full range of people who are impacted by gun violence other than the person who may have been directly injured or lost his or her life. Um, I think with the opioid epidemic as an interesting parallel, I think there you have actually started to see more and more of a focus on the others who are infect- affected. Uh, we've seen more stories about children, for example, who are uh, essentially orphaned uh, and are in, and now have to go to foster homes. And, and foster homes actually in Ohio and in other states are now seeing record levels uh, of children that they're having to take on because their parents have been lost to opioid overdoses. I think you're right, it is important to tell uh, those stories, which means it's important for those people to also speak up when they can. As far as uh, Philando Castile is concerned, and, and the racial uh, element that you uh, raise with violence, it's a very good point. If you look at uh, gun homicides, uh, it's somewhere in the range of fifty or fifty-one percent of gun homicides, uh, you know, affect uh, blacks in our country, uh, who only make up about eighteen percent of the population. Uh, that's a striking striking discrepancy. Uh, And we've heard about a lot of the racial undertones when it comes to police engagement with minority communities. You know, after, um, I believe it was after uh, Flandre Castile's, you know, after he was shot and after he died, uh, I think it was shortly after that that I was making a trip out to Seattle, uh, and I was actually visiting with the police department there, and I had a, a, a roundtable conversation with them actually about this larger issue, uh, because we often actually don't hear much from police officers, you know, uh, as this debate rages about how to improve relations between police and the and the community. But I had a, a, an open two-hour roundtable with them uh, and asked them, look, let's talk about this issue, and how do you feel about this? Uh, what do you think should be done? Uh, and what's really important, I think, to keep in mind is that most police officers are actually good people who are doing the right thing. And we, we can't forget that because in the, because there are a few bad eggs here and there. It doesn't mean we should vilify everyone. This is true also with the opioid epidemic. There are a few doctors out there who are doing the wrong thing intentionally and who are and part of the pill mill problem, as we call it. But the majority of doctors are out there trying to do the right thing. But the question that we were exploring together was um, was how do you actually improve this relationship? Uh, the, in sometimes in, in public, in larger sort of like, in national discourse or media-related discourse, it can become very polarizing and it can seem like it's the police against minorities. And I know for many minority families, that's how they feel, like each and every day in their communities. You know, I, I had a, a woman in, who was working in our office, uh, who's African-American, who uh, came in the day after uh, you know, after that happened and she said, uh, she said, you know, I'm just, I'm scared. Uh, about my son, who's two years old. I don't know how to keep him alive. Um, I don't know what to tell him about how to interact with the police. Uh, I just don't know what to do. And so the question that arises to me, similar to what we talked about earlier, is how do we actually create real conversation uh, and build real bonds of trust between police officers and the communities they serve? Part of that is about having a police force that reflects the community that they serve. That's an important piece of it. But convening these conversations so that they can happen in an honest and open way, I think, is essential. Is it easy? Absolutely not. These are very difficult, and people come into these conversations with not just personal history, but years of community history. But as we were experimenting with earlier today in an exercise called Creative Tensions, there are ways that you can actually bring people together to share who they are, what their values are, and to surface their common values and on that build bonds of trust. That's what we were doing this morning. That's what we actually hope to do around the country uh, in communities uh, that, you know, rural and urban where we bring police officers and minority community members and teachers and doctors and others together to tackle some of these big issues.
2: Okay, here.
3: Thank you. I'm a pediatrician and I care a lot about kids and gun violence is a big issue. I also care a lot about kids who are isolated and lonely and do a lot of video gaming. So much of the gaming is violent. And my impression from those I've talked to is that it kind of makes them immune to the violence around them. And does that change their propensity to engage in violence? I've had parents who say, you know, my kid does a lot of this on, online and I just found guns in their bedroom or the BB guns or whatever. Does it change? Has there been any science? And what's the role of the parent? A lot
2: of parents have asked this question.
1: Yeah, it is a really important question. And I, I think what we see in movies, in television, and in video games, those set norms for our children of what acceptable behavior is. Uh, you know, I remember some years ago uh, a lot of discussion around a particular video game that, uh, you know, in which women were badly treated. and. It was just part of the game. And there was a, you know, a right, I think rightfully there was a lot of anger about that saying, what are we teaching our young boys and our young girls about how it's okay for women to be treated when they see games like this and where you win, in fact, by treating certain people poorly? So I do think that uh, it's, it's an important uh, source of influence to consider, particularly around conflict resolution. You know, some of the emotional well-being programs I mentioned in schools, uh, some of the skills that they focus on developing are skills around conflict resolution. You know, if I see everywhere around me on television and video games and in my home, that the way we reserve, resolve conflict is uh, by hitting somebody else or by shooting at them or injuring them in some way, uh, by using my power, if you will, then that tells me that in real life, that's an acceptable way to do it. And, you know, whether we like it or not, Uh, Our children will find role models in the environment around them and if that environment models behavior That is toxic and harmful to others, then they will see that as okay And that's not okay, you know And if we're not investing at the earliest stages of life in helping our kids build a foundation uh, for healthy living and for developing healthy relationships with other people then we're gonna spend the rest of our time and resources trying to deal with it 20-30 years later And that's honestly part of the problem that we have today.
2: So it's video games, it's television, it's movies, it's everything. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. So let's see, right here. Thank you for that amazing
0: discussion. My name is Sophia and I'm a child psychiatrist working in the community. A lot of my patients suffer from housing insecurity and food insecurity and it comes into my office as an ADHD referral. Um, I appreciate all of the work that can be done in schools to help kids learn to communicate and solve problems. Are there other avenues to help kids in our community learn to take care of each other?
1: It's a good question. You know, I think the responsibility for ensuring that our children have a foundation to lead a healthy and strong life is not solely the responsibility of schools. You know, I think it falls upon parents and families as well, but it also falls upon other institutions. Uh, You know, I had a chance to work with the YMCA a lot when I was a Surgeon General, and uh, they have a a wonderful mission that's very much focused on children. And whenever we would talk about emotional well-being initiatives and where to to ground them, uh, the YMCA would always stand up and say, why not us? You know, we're in communities across the country faith-based organizations I think are powerful, powerful resources uh, that can not only help children, but can bring families together you know, around you know, acquiring and training and tools for social emotional well-being. Um, the truth is that if we really want to create a community where both children and adults have the tools to live a healthy life, uh, and to have a high degree of emotional well-being, We actually need multiple sectors involved. This is not the job of just the public health sector, but as an employer, I need to be thinking about how do I cultivate emotional well-being for my employees so it can improve my retention, increase your productivity, but most importantly, strengthen my community. Uh, as a school, I need to be thinking about that for my kids. As a hospital, I need to be thinking about that for my patients, because it should be more than about how do I treat their pneumonia and then get them back home, but it should be how do I prevent their illness in the first place? How do I create the circumstances under which uh, they can really thrive? So I believe that, that the responsibility for creating that foundation for life lies with all of us. And the question that's gonna come up in every community is who should convene all of those players to recognize and embrace the role that they can play in enhancing our emotional well-being. And that might be different from community to community. In one community, it might be the public health uh, lead. In another community, it might be a teacher at a school. Uh, in another community, it might be you, uh, you know, a child psychiatrist. Uh, so, but it has to be one of us stepping up to say, we can bring people together to recognize and embrace a the role they can play in this. You know, one last thought I'll, I'll share on this larger issue uh, that we're talking about is, um, when it comes to gun violence, I know it can seem that we are gridlocked as a country. I know it can seem like we're at an impasse and there's no way to move forward. But I believe that one of the reasons why it's been so hard to move forward on this issue and on other issues is because we are locked in a mindset of fear. And I've come to feel over time that our country is really in a locked in a struggle between a love and fear, if you will. You know, love and fear have their own manifestations. Fear can manifest as anxiety and suspicion and anger and jealousy and rage. And love has its own manifestations of generosity and acceptance and compassion. But we have to fundament, these two values though, uh, of love and fear are what drive our decisions. They're what drive our interactions with people. And as a country, we have to make a decision about whether we want to live in a country that is powered by love, or whether we want to live in a country that is imprisoned by fear. And right now, it feels like we're imprisoned by fear. And we're not gonna break out of that and tilt that balance towards love because of any legislation that's passed or because of any regulation that's written. We're gonna do it because people like each of you stand up in your communities and in your day-to-day life, you make a decision to choose love over fear and you bring other people together around that. If we do that, and we will become the country I believe that we need to be, a country that's inspired, informed, and governed by love, where that's reflected in our schools, reflected in our workplaces and reflected in our elected leaders and that to me is a country that all of us deserve it's a country that our children deserve
2: you were telling me dr murthy before we came out here that you're still figuring out what you're going to do uh next Uh, but can we may we assume that you are going to be working on this issue among others i know you were did a part of a program earlier today on opioid uh, addiction. Give us a hint about what you're going to be spending your time on.
1: Well, there are no secrets to keep because I don't have a, a 100% clear vision about what I will do in the future. But what I do know uh, is that uh, my wife, Alice, and I feel very deeply invested uh, in the issue of emotional well being and improving it for our country. We have come to realize that it is so tightly connected, not just to health, but to what happens in our schools, to our performance in the workplace, and to the quality or lack of quality of our public dialogue and our political dialogue. And so we want to work on advancing emotional well-being in communities across America. We want to work on creating the kinds of dialogues that we did uh, earlier today. Um, We want to work on on ensuring that our schools provide that kind of foundation for emotional well-being from the earliest stage for our children. Um, we don't know exactly what that'll look like. It might look like a, an institute that we build to connect the dots on emotional well-being around the country. There were hundreds, literally, of partners that we met when I was Surgeon General who were working on this issue in isolated pockets around the country. There are many people I met who didn't realize how much science there is behind emotional well-being and how that connects it, us it, to so much else that we care about in health. So we're thinking about potentially building something that will help to advance that cause. And alongside that, I will continue to do the work that I've been doing on substance use and addiction, particularly around the opioid crisis. These two are very much linked, though. Uh, You know, addiction is, in many ways, is a disease of despair that's driven by a deficit of hope. And I've seen that clearly in the families that I have visited around the country. And emotional well-being, while it's not the entire solution to all of our problems, um, it is a way of addressing the chronic stress epidemic that we have. And stress is a powerful reason why people often relapse and why they often reach for substances in the first place. And so this is a big part of where I'd like to focus my efforts going forward.
2: Dr. Vivek Murthy, thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Vivek Murthy served as US Surgeon General from 2014 to 2017. During that time, he launched the Turn the Tide campaign to address the nation's opioid crisis. Judy Woodruff anchors the PBS NewsHour. Prior to that, she spent 12 years anchoring Inside Politics on CNN. Woodruff and Murthy's conversation was held in June of 2017 at Spotlight Health. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen follow us year round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Aspen Ideas To Go is produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Spotlight Health Programming team is Ruth Katz, Peggy Clark, Katie Dresser, Natalie Johnson, and Sola Farquhar. Our theme music is by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.